This is Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production. I'm Kyle Simitsis, and in this episode, we feature stories by journalism students from the University of New South Wales on Bettigal Country. We'll be looking at how to make a difference in small ways and large, by confronting racism, by engaging with Ukrainian refugees, and by understanding the power of a vote for a minor party. First, let's talk racism. Sanjana Joes gets straight to the point. Today, we're going to discuss why I think you're a little bit racist. Well, that has not been my experience. Okay, Mr Howard, that's a fair response. I mean, we don't really like to call ourselves racist, especially young people. Young Australians, like myself, have this general collective consensus that racism in Australia is real. After all, a recent national youth survey revealed that racism was a top concern for young people. But just because we're anti-racist, anti-stop the boats campaign and anti-Pauline Hanson doesn't mean that it absolves our unconscious racial bias. We're not racist per se, but we kinda are. Okay, this is getting a little confusing, so let's talk to Dr. Andrew Brooks, a UNSW lecturer and expert on racism and critical race theory, about what exactly racism looks like. You know, I take racism to refer to acts and actions that reproduce and naturalize the fiction of race. Okay, so that's important, I think, important to think about race as a socially produced fiction. What I, when I say uh, uh, the fiction of race, what I mean is that there is no sort of fixed essence to race. There is no biological essence to race. There is no deterministic quality that we can kind of identify statically as immutable truth. So race is not real, but it's how we internalize it is what impacts our everyday interactions. By now, you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with me? I mean, what does anything Dr. Brooks say in theory look like in real life? So a study conducted by Australian National University, which collected data from 11,000 people over the course of 10 years, revealed that three out of four Australians held negative unconscious bias against First Nations people and conversely held positive implicit bias towards Caucasians. Look, we can't stop racism overnight, but I wanted to see how people viewed their relationship with race. Are young people willing to put themselves in hot water? I asked university students at UNSW what they thought. Are you a racist? I would say no, or at least I'd like to think of myself as not being a racist. No, of course not. Um, I would not consider myself a racist, no. No, I'm not a racist. I don't consider myself a racist. When I was in high school, a friend came up to me in PE, wrapped her arms around me and said that I was her little terrorist. It was the moment I knew I would never fully be Australian or be considered her equal. She exhibits classic signs of casual racism, but it's so much more than that. It's emblematic of racial bias. She's not the typical racist, right? She never had the intention to put me down or hurt me. She's being racist without even knowing it. What do you think of racial bias? everyone has bias and it's somewhat unavoidable. The thing with racial bias though is I think that we should do our absolute best to combat it um, and make sure it's not really making you view anyone else as inferior just because of their race. So do you think you have unconscious racial bias? I want to say no but I feel that's probably unrealistic. We always think of race as external and obvious especially because it concerns the colour of our skin. But it's so implicit and internalized that we don't quite recognize the fact that it's racism, even if it's staring us in the face. Look, 
it's hard to reckon with our own bias, but I don't think we should live in a world where immigrants, refugees, and First Nation people feel like they're half-citizens just because it's a bit hard for us. That was Sanjana Joe's reporting. We know racism is a problem in Australia, but just how bad is it? And what can we do about it? Is your response to bigotry reactive or proactive? Jacob Sakenik reports. Most Aussies agree that racism is a huge problem in our country. Australia Talks, a survey conducted by the ABC last year, found that over three quarters of Australians felt that racism was still a prominent problem in communities nationwide. But while we might agree that racism is super prevalent, things start to get a little fuzzy when it comes to actually identifying and preventing racism when and before it happens. We recently sat down with Dr. Andrew Brooks. Andrew helped us to identify racism and the ways through which it can manifest itself in our society. Racism is foundational to um, settler colonial contexts. And because it's foundational to settler colonial contexts, it becomes naturalised. It becomes part of the kind of structures and infrastructures that we rely on to live. Racism to me refers to the kind of acts and actions that naturalise and produce what we come to think of as race. We can think about it not simply as a kind of a bias or prejudice that exists, but something that's active, that's acting on the world. So it seems pretty clear that racism has historically and continues to run deep within the veins of our country. And when it comes to awareness, activism and prevention, it's us, young people, who have been largely leading the charge in the anti-racism movement. So I spoke to some young Australians to hear their thoughts. Do you think that Australia is racist? Yeah. Yeah, in many ways, yes. I think there are a lot of racist individuals in Australia and um, there's probably enough of those to give to brand Australia as a racist country. But has the anti-racism movement, at least in mainstream circles, been more reactive than proactive? All of the major anti-racism movements of recent years were sparked by particular incidents happening around the world. For example, it took racist remarks made by politicians and the media in response to the COVID-19 pandemic for anti-Asian sentiments to be recognised and identified. And although the Black Lives Matter movement has raised tons of awareness about police brutality against Black and Indigenous people, it took the murder of George Floyd to get people talking in the first place. This past September was the Jewish High Holidays, where Jewish Australians, myself included, celebrate the holiest days of our religious calendar. It's also during this time, however, that incidents of anti-Semitism increased dramatically. A report by Dr. Matteo Vagani from Deakin University in Victoria shows that anti-Semitic incidents in Australia spike around religious holidays and festivals. But it seems like our awareness of anti-Semitism's prevalence in Australia doesn't match this trend. The unfortunate existence of a hatred against Jewish people has mostly gone under the radar in Australia. Many of the young people I spoke with were even unfamiliar with the term itself, or only thought of it as some bygone sentiment, framed by historical events like the Holocaust. Jeez, don't even know what that term means. Anti-Semitism. The Holocaust, which is probably the biggest example of anti-Semitism. Yeah, I I don't think I've seen much anti-Semitism in Australia, personally. I don't really understand that question. Anti-Semitism? While the anti-racist movements of recent years have been super important in enacting tangible change, they've only come in response to horrific and tragic incidents. 
Instead of waiting for something terrible to happen to our Jewish community, I reckon it's time that we start being proactive instead of reactive when it comes to racism. And as young Australians, we're in the best position to start this conversation. That was Jacob Sakenik reporting. We'll return to the issue of racism later in the program. Turning now to Ukraine, we can also see the power of being proactive in the way neighbouring countries, especially Poland, open their home to refugees. Claudia McDonald reports. It was a Monday morning in Warsaw when four exhausted strangers showed up on a Polish woman's doorstep. Without a second of hesitation or knowing their names, Malgosia Tarameshka ushered in the mother and her three children and showed them to their new beds. Another family of three followed soon after. Four days of airstrikes and evacuations had elapsed since Russia invaded Ukraine. Ukrainians were pouring into Poland by the millions. Just when it started, my eldest daughter, who's 25, she got involved right away, and that's how I got this first family. Without her mum knowing, Malgosia's daughter had been helping refugees at the Polish border since the invasion started a couple days earlier. Malgosia called her daughter to see how she could help. And uh, she said, yeah, so I'll call my friend who is responsible for their reallocation of refugees. And her friend called me a minute later and I said, yeah, I can take a family. Okay, so can we come? And I say, like, when? And I was thinking maybe, you know, in three days time or something. Yeah, half an hour. (laughs) And they came, you know, the family of four. Completely unprepared, Malgosha, her husband and their four children created space in their lives for the mother and her children aged 6, 12 and 15. The family had fled to Nopal, 480 kilometres from the Polish border, because the children started fearing for their lives. They decided to go when when the children started not eating, being very nervous, crying for no reason. They were really, really stressed. And she said, you know, I can't stay here. We need to just go and see what's happening. And she left everything, really. I mean, they had a suitcase. And at the time when they were coming, lots of people were having some suitcases, and but they would not take them on the bus. Uh, so they had to leave everything. They have no money. They have no savings. With nothing but one suitcase between the family of four, Malgosha had been helping them rebuild their lives. I go with them shopping and she chooses whatever she needs for her and her family and uh, I pay for everything. Malgosha is one of millions of Poles who have thrown open their doors to Ukrainian refugees. She says this is the new normal. Like, oh, I almost don't know people who do not have Ukrainians in their houses. And most of my friends here in the area, they have families visiting, staying. We're trying to deal with the anxiety that we have. And this is one of the ways to deal with it, to just be proactive, to do something for the people. People have opened not only their homes, but their schools and even local businesses too, as the entire Polish community has banded together to support the incoming refugees. Yesterday, the woman that's staying with me said, I have to go and get a haircut for my two boys because they look terrible now. And she went to the salon and she got the, uh, the cuts for free. She didn't even ask for it. Okay, one woman that came does nails, so is a ma- manicurist. So we go and, uh, you know, do our nails with her so <laughs> she can make some money. Or most schools actually accept children. There are like 60 new children in uh, almost every school. 
they created afternoon classes for Ukrainian kids. And they have Polish, they have English, they have uh, some subjects in Ukrainian math. Really amazing to be in this atmosphere as well, because everyone is giving. Not everyone is as open as Malgosha. Some Poles have turned a blind eye to refugees on their doorstep. And I think about Polish people not accepting other refugees, uh, which is shameful, but these people are in need. And if they are, who are we to decide that these people are not to come into our country? And really, it is not a big deal. We see how much we have uh, that we can give. Uh, we didn't even realize that. And once you start giving, you see that this is not really like a big deal. You just, it doesn't make you any poorer. But she warns that the closed-door attitude could come back to bite Poles, who also face the risk of becoming refugees themselves. So we are so close to this war. We are just next door. If this goes on, we're next. So that's how we live. We don't know whether we shouldn't pack and go somewhere right now before anything starts. So it's a very uncertain time for us. While Ukrainian refugees rely on the kindness of complete strangers, those strangers face the very real possibility of becoming refugees too. That was Claudia McDonald reporting. Back in Australia, we turn to the role of minor parties. Before the federal election, a lot of questions were asked about whether a vote for an independent or a minor party was a wasted vote. Sanjana Joes investigates. There's no point voting an independent party first because Labour or Liberal will always win. So you might as well use your first vote to vote for either one of those parties so you're actually making a difference. Okay, let's bust some myths about Australian politics today. Independent candidates and minor parties actually bring a lot to the table. They keep our government accountable and give us issue-based, community-based politicians. But the biggest myth I want to bust is that with our electoral system, you won't be wasting your vote if you don't choose a major party. About one in four votes, primary votes, so far going to the minor parties. This is higher From than Pauline Hanson's One Nation to Grassroots Voices of Group, for good or for worse, these smaller politicians have gained prominence. They all vary in sizes, support and demographic, but they all have one thing in common. They reflect a sustained dissatisfaction with our two major parties. I mean, look, in my view, they're a, they're a protest movement. Uh, and, you know, heard about the Voices of movement? It's the voices of Labor at the end of the day. So, for the most part since 1955, governments have had to gain the support of independent or minor party senators to pass measures through the Senate. So, even though the number of minor and independent candidates may seem trivial, their support by the Australian public is steadily increasing and their role is becoming more and more important. Our two major parties are blazy. Right? They, they don't really care about whether we turn out to vote for them. They know that as long as they're the, the lesser of two evils, that we're going to end up voting for them anyway. That was Dr Jill Shepard, a political scientist and lecturer at the Australian National University, studying among many things Australian elections and politics. So there's not a great deal of sort of inspiration or of, of mobilising voters or of trying to sort of capture a spark in Australian politics that actually gets us excited. And so in that trade-off between stability and excitement, Australia has tended very, very strongly towards stability. And that's where independent uh, and minor parties come in because 
they are all about excitement, right? They're trying to kind of move us from our our sense of stability. They're trying to get us a little bit more excited about politics. They're trying to get us to think about Australian politics in a different way, sort of to throw out this idea that we are a a two-major party system and will always be that way. I also had an opportunity to discuss why these minor parties are important with Cosmin Luca, New South Wales' Young Greens co-convener. One thing that we always see from major parties is they like to tend towards the centre and and pleasing that idea of the political every everyday person, right, or the po- political layperson. And you know whether it's labour or liberals, they have this idea that as long as we stick to the mean and as long as we're trying to encapsulate that centre, uh, we're going to win power. And and that's actually the the real value behind other options and the major parties. It's that these parties are more interested in the actual principles which they put up and the actual policies which they put up and the beliefs which they're really trying to see, like, you know, be propagated throughout our country. They care more about this than just a blind race to win power. So those are the good things about our alternative options. But there's a catch. As Dr. Shepard explains, these minor party and independent candidates may look and hold the same privilege as our major party candidates do as well. Running for for office is really, really hard. It's really time consuming. Um, it's it's expensive. It means that if you can't just pack up your job for three months and go and campaign full time, you're almost locked out. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I mean, this isn't to run down what the independent candidates and minor party candidates are doing. What They are giving us a choice. So apart from the democratic spirit of it all, what have our alternative options actually achieved? You've got politicians who have been running in safe seats for the past, you know, 15 years of their political career. And they know that their margins are so high that they could, you know, never possibly lose to the point that they don't even show up in their local community, right? So when you have these politicians not showing up in their local community, all it takes is a Greens candidate to start doing that and to start listening to people and to start asking them, hey, what what do you want to see from politicians? The huge benefit of independent candidates is that they can horse trade with the major parties, right? They can, they're all about pork barreling. If you want a new bridge or some new roads for your electorate, they're the people who can really get to that. And if you're worried about throwing away your vote, Dr Shepard has something to say. In Australia, we have what's called uh, preferential voting. It's sometimes called alternative voting. Um, It means we do get to rank our preferences. So if your preferred candidate is someone from a minor party or is an independent candidate, if you give them your first preference vote and they don't get elected, your vote still counts because it will go to the next candidate that you want to, to be elected. That was St. Janet Joe's reporting. Now, let's get back to talking about racism. Madison Howarth looks at the systemic racism experienced by First Nations Australians and the conversations we need to have. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been on this land, now known as Australia, for up to 100,000 years. It is well known that historically, First Nations people have been treated terribly. But is it all historical? Is Australia racist towards Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people still? Yes. Yes, I think that has been demonstrated time and time again. Uh, yes, I think so. I wonder if these answers might have been different prior to May 2020. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, reignited by the murder of George Floyd in the US, some people questioned the validity of the movement in Australia. It became apparent that many Australians perhaps were not aware of the systemic racism in their own backyard. To understand how we got to this point, I thought about where this might stem from. I'm a proud Wanarua and Yuan woman, and my first experience of racism was as a child in primary school. 
And thinking back on the education I received of Australian history in the public school system, I was curious to know what others had learned. I was only really taught the history of Australia from 1780 onwards, and it was sort of just looked over as like, oh, well, the British rocked up there, um, Indigenous people were there before, but you're just sort of just meant to keep going on past that. Not as much as I probably think we should have learnt. I definitely think that there were things that were left untouched, conversations that were, I guess, too, quote-unquote, uncomfortable for the teachers to be talking about. My experience with racism is not unique, unfortunately, and it doesn't stop in the playground. In a 2018 survey, one in three Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people said they had experienced racial abuse in the six months prior. So if we can experience racism as young as primary school, should we be teaching it then too? Dr. Andrew Brooks' research focuses on the politics of race and embodiment in media culture. There is no too young to be introduced to um, questions of race and racism and how we understand those concepts. Um, I think that's something that we should be thinking about how we communicate and how we teach um, to children of all ages. Um, you know, we live in Australia, we live in a settler colonial context, we live in a context that is shaped by, foundationally, by logics of race and racism. And so those contexts permeate everything we do and all of the interactions that we have. And so from the very earliest ages, people are racialized and children are racialized and are subject to those processes of racism or racialization. There is no age that's too young to start having those conversations. The question is about how we have the conversation. So how do we have the conversation? Well, let's start with children's books. A recent study that analysed almost 2,500 books in four childcare centres in Western Australia found that 33% of books featured solely Caucasian characters and books with a main character from a minority background, just 2%. 49% of books featured no human characters, meaning kids from minority backgrounds are more likely to read a book featuring a character that is a dinosaur than someone who looks like them. Research also shows that children form bias towards their own race from as young as three months, and by the time they are four to six years old, they already show awareness of racial stereotyping or prejudice. From the youngest of ages, we are taught that white is normal and superior. So does Australia have a problem with racism? Yes. The good news? This can change if we nip it in the bud young. That was Madison Howth reporting. Finally, let's take a look at racism in the media. Vivian Crowell investigates how a lack of diversity in the newsroom can impact which stories are told. So you'd expect hospitalisations to keep on rising. Millions will now have access to a third COVID vaccine. Several Sydney suburbs are under the toughest ever COVID restrictions. I'm sure that many of those voices were familiar. They're some of Australia's most renowned TV and radio journalists that many of us listen to every day providing solace during the roller coaster that has been the COVID-19 pandemic. But there are some communities who feel invisible or even attacked when they flick on the telly or tune into the radio. Australian newsrooms have some of the poorest levels of diversity globally. A landmark study commissioned by Media Diversity Australia in 2020 showed that over 75% of anchors, commentators and reporters on our screens have Anglo-Celtic backgrounds. This is despite Anglo-Celtic Aussies accounting for just over half our population. 
I asked a group of media-savvy students from the University of New South Wales about the representation of ethnic minorities and people of colour in Australia's media. Here's what they had to say. They're underportrayed. I don't see them too much in the media. Their voices, if they are there, it's kind of for a brief second. Whenever they are portrayed, it's usually about issues, so racial issues, social issues. Again, the media is predominantly represented by white people. Not as informed as it should be, not as sensitive as it should be. So, what can this tell us about Australia's reporting during the pandemic? A lack of diversity is reflected in the stories programs make, the issues they examine, and the way they examine them. Joining us today is Yorta Yorta woman, Dr. Summer May Finlay. Finlay is a public health researcher at the Universities of Wollongong and Canberra. She has worked in Indigenous affairs at a national level. I think what we need to be seeing in Australian media is actually a greater diversity of voices. So we need to be seeing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people talking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues. Findlay referenced coverage of Australia's Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, saying that it showed a broader attitude in Australian media. The protests were against Indigenous deaths in custody. Health officials from around the country meet today to discuss the potential impact of weekend anti-racism rallies on the spread of COVID-19. So we actually see this dialogue and this narrative in Australia of this blaming and shaming Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. A lack of diversity in our newsrooms not only impacts Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, but also those who have ancestors in far-flung places. When Sydney was plunged into a lockdown last year, reporting on the city's multicultural hub in the West became increasingly accusatory. Police will be door-knocking hundreds of homes right across Western and Southwestern Sydney really over the next few weeks just to make sure that everyone is doing the right thing. Dr Andrew Brooks says that these ideas were strung along racial lines and overlooked structural issues like class. There's a lot of focus on people in the western suburbs doing the wrong thing and willfully doing the wrong thing. That often obscures the fact that a lot of people living in the western suburbs are doing the work that is essential. We can see the rhetoric of personal choice obscuring some of the impossibility of that choice. Given everything we've heard today, Diversity in the Australian media and the understanding and sensitivity that comes with it is looking like a tall order. But Findlay says that change is necessary. We need to have robust, diverse conversations that not just focus on what's happening in our communities that may not be positive, but also looking at our strengths within our communities. So when you hear familiar voices on your commute or in the living room, pause for a moment. Ask yourself... What stories are being told? How are they being told? And who is telling them? Now ask yourself, what stories are not being told? And that story from Vivian Crow finishes our program. For more stories from the best student journalism in Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com. Making a Difference is produced every month. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast app. I'm Kyle Simitsis, and thanks for tuning in.